What we're going to do, as we normally do, is we're going to begin with the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 3 as we've begun our sermon series in the book of 12. We find ourselves now in Hosea chapter 3. And so if you can, please turn in your Bibles. If, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have Bibles in the seat in front of you. We'll be on page 704, roughly near the top. Um, and uh, we'll also have it on the screens for you. So please, uh, as we regularly do, follow along with us. Read with us with intentional eyes. Uh, for that, uh, I, I like giving homework whenever we read the text together. And so, are you guys ready? This, this is your homework. Uh, what, what we're going to be doing, I want you to pay careful attention as we read these very familiar five verses of chapter 3. And pay careful attention to how, how Hosea's actions serve as this extraordinary picture of the gospel message. So you can please follow along with me as we read this together. Hosea chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says this. And the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love the raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You should not play the whore, belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Praise God for his word. Please join me in prayer. Let's pray. Dear God, again, we come before you and we confess that it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we can stand before you. And as we just read, we recognize your incredible patience your steadfast mercy for undeserving sinners. And out of our sin, we, we wander away from your goodness. We are enslaved to sin, and we owe a debt that we could never pay. But it is because of your unconditional love, your abounding mercy, that you make believers alive in Christ through faith. It is through Jesus' death on the cross that our debt is paid in full. We are redeemed, freed from sin, and restored in right relationship with you. We rejoice in your gospel message this morning together. But for those that don't know what it means to be in this right relationship with you through Jesus Christ and his blood, we, we pray God, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you guide them this morning. Meet them where they're at. To understand the power of the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. For those of us here that want to grow in that understanding, for those of us or that might be familiar with this passage, maybe even over-familiar, Spirit, we, we ask that you guide us and give us fresh eyes as we learn from your word this morning, that's inexhaustible, teach us. Help us to know you and love you more. And we pray these things in the power of Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. For those of you who may be new to the Bible, maybe, maybe new to the beginning half of your Bible, uh, the book of Hosea might seem somewhat strange. Uh, oftentimes we hear about the Bible in mainstream Christian culture. Uh, we, we hear these familiar concepts like God is loving, God is forgiving, and God desires us to love each other. 
But, you know, for the past three weeks as we've been going through this Old Testament book in Hosea, we've come across some very interesting, very confusing elements, such as a less than ideal marriage, uh, an adulterous wife who, who leaves her husband and flees to other lovers, and also very confusing, we, we see instead of God's forgiveness and love, we see God's divine judgment where God says that Israel is no longer my people and I am no longer their God. You know, th- these elements would certainly be confusing, not, not to mention that they would seem to contradict the overall message of God's love in the Bible. But as I mentioned, as Matt's mentioned these past few weeks, when we look carefully at these elements within its context, within its framework, within the context of God's big story as we've been practicing on Monday nights, Wednesday nights, and Friday nights, we don't see a contradiction here in Hosea. We don't see a contradiction. We see a confirmation of God's amazing love. By by carefully diving into this text for the past several weeks, we have seen how these difficult elements, these confusing, challenging elements, they perfectly communicate the gospel message. How is that? Let's review very quickly. In chapter 1, we read how God instructed Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman. His marriage was to communicate God's message to his people. What was that message? Well, Hosea represented God, and Hosea's unfaithful wife, if you're filling in blanks, this is kind of your cue, Hosea's unfaithful wife, Gomer, represented Israel. Represented Israel and their idolatrous relationship against God, against Him. You see, instead of being faithful to God as His people, Israel gave their love to foreign, false, when I tell my kids, fake gods. These were the false gods of their enemies, Baal and Molech. Instead of uh, worshiping God, Israel worshiped these false gods because they were duped into believing these two things. That one, that their Lord God, the only God, just wasn't enough. And two, that these other gods could provide better than their one and only God could. You know, and, and what Israel was doing here it was very dangerous. You might think, oh no, they, they still have some version of Christianity. At least that's good. But no, that, what they were doing here was dangerous and even more dangerous than outright abandoning God. Why? Because it was subtle. On the surface, they were still performing according to God's righteous standard for them. On the surface, they still wanted to be perceived as God's people. On the surface, they were playing the game. But beneath the surface, their hearts were won over by the promises of these false gods. As Matt has done very well, he's explained this is called syncretism, where where Israel intentionally blended together opposing faith systems. Why? For their benefit. They wanted the benefits of the one true God, especially of their forefathers, but they also wanted the promises of these false gods. They presumed God's favor, they presumed God's love upon themselves, even if they turned their backs on Him. So what was God's message for them? Israel, in Hosea's time, will face the consequences of their apostasy. They will be destroyed and their covenant relationship has been broken. And this was tough news for Israel, but it also came with this message of hope. Though the covenant relationship was broken, it was not annulled. God, out of His grace, announces that He will still be faithful to His promises. Though Israel in Hosea's day will be destroyed, God will still be faithful to keep His ancient promises and fulfill them to the letter. And on a future day, God will still provide His Messiah, His chosen one, to save them just as he had promised long ago. 
Moving into chapter 2, we saw how God would provide for His unfaithful people even while they continued to pursue their other lovers, even as they continued to abandon God. In fact, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2, God will woo His beloved back into His love. How will God do this? He will remind them that He alone, He alone can provide for them because He alone truly loves them. The love they they gave away to foreign gods will never be reciprocated for two reasons. One, these false gods were never alive to begin with. And two, why, why can't these false gods reciprocate that love, love them back? Because they were never able to provide or protect for Israel in the first place. Therefore, God will woo His beloved back by speaking tenderly to them and generously providing for them like He did at the beginning of their covenant relationship together. So Hosea then speaks of a future day, just like we see in chapter 3. He speaks of this future day when Israel will know God. This knowledge of God will be an intimate knowledge knowing in right relationship, acknowledging Him as their God and faithfully loving Him again. Now, when the text says Israel, it certainly means Israel. But it also, it also communicates the reality of all of mankind. This is the next blank if you're filling in notes. Not only does Gomer represent Israel and their idolatrous worship against God, but Hosea's unfaithful wife also represents all of us, all of humanity, every last one of us. Like Israel, our our sin has broken the right relationship that we had with God. We're born sinners who continue to turn away from God in our sin and continue to give our love away to others. Like Israel, we need a Savior who will woo us back and save us, not by our own abilities, not by our earnings, but by the mighty hand and the grace of God, not by our own sacrifices, but by the final sacrifice of our great God. So with this understanding of chapters 1 and 2, chapter 3 completes this beautiful picture of God's big story. As Hosea demonstrates God's amazing love and as he purchased and redeemed his own wife from enslavement. So the title of the sermon this morning is Purchased and Redeemed. And again, we're gonna be in Hosea chapter three. Let me talk about my goals this morning. If you're not a Christian this morning, maybe you've even fallen away from the faith that you once had. My hope for you this morning is that you will not only witness God's past grace for Israel, past grace for yourself, but that you will again witness God's present grace made available for everyone. My hope is that you will be personally, again, be drawn to His grace through the power of the gospel this morning. Brother and sister in Christ, if you're, if you're a Christian this morning, you've been saved by his blood, this is my hope for you this morning. My hope is that you'll reflect on your response, how you, your life responds to God's amazing grace and his love. Your everyday life, how that's a response to his love. And for this, I want to highlight three truths that evidence God's amazing grace and how we should respond to it. The first truth that evidences God's amazing grace is this. This is your next blank. God pursues his people. Listen to that. God pursues his people even though they're unworthy of his unconditional love. You know, everyone has their favorite love stories. Whether they read it in a book, saw it in a movie theater, or, or they, they watch it unfold in the relationships around them. 
You know, love stories can be very captivating. And for those who don't want to admit this truth, you can at least, at the very least, agree that, that many of these popular love stories, though, though entertaining, sometimes they just don't make sense. You know, a phenomena that I still can't wrap my mind around is this common love story where there's this hopeless romantic, right? And he just can't take a hint. You know, he, he might even be this stand-up guy, but for some reason, his love just never stops. It's unrelenting. It's this chase. You know, he continues to pursue this woman that he loves, doing everything he can to win over her heart, but as the story progresses on and on and on, as the movie unfolds, she makes it abundantly clear that she wants nothing to do with him. No amount of providing for her or no amount of gifts or protecting her will woo her to him. What a sad story, right? Certain questions often come to mind in these types of stories. How can he still love someone so undeserving? Why why can't he just suck it up and, and move on with his life? And we, we, we see this intensified version of this one-way street relationship captured in the life of Hosea. We must remember that Hosea was not some love-struck 30-year-old looking for some wife. He was a man of God who was divinely instructed to marry a promiscuous woman, a woman who was known for her unfaithfulness and her loose lifestyle. And Hosea, out of obedience to God, married Gomer. And through Gomer, Hosea had three kids. And, you know, if this narrative ended here, this could have made a nice, happily ever after love story. But this is not so. The text implies that Gomer's promiscuous lifestyle, it hadn't changed. Despite the fact that she was married to Hosea and had a family with him, Like chapter 1, chapter 3 begins with an instruction from God. Hosea is told to go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. And I'm glad that the the, the words are up there on the screen. If you have your Bible with you, just just look at what it says here with that word again. I want to focus your attention on this word again. Because it clarifies that this is not a retelling of chapter 1. This is happening again. Chapter 3 resumes the story that began in chapter 1. The word again implies that this woman that he is to love again is his wife, Gomer. And I can imagine that this would have been a very difficult instruction for Hosea to hear. Not only would this be reopening several years of past wounds in his painful marriage, but it would be a painful reminder of her current adultery. You see, her unfaithfulness was still in progress. She was not home. This was not a singular, isolated lapse of judgment. This was a woman who has deserted her husband, deserted her children for relations with other men. The phrase loved by another doesn't mean that another man is in love with Gomer. Understand, it communicates that she continues to have intimate encounters with other men. And although she is an adulteress, God tells her that Hosea must go and love her again. In the ending half of verse 1, God explains again how Hosea's actions will communicate God's relationship with his people. See, just as Gomer was in a covenant relationship with Hosea, Israel, too, was in this covenant relationship with the Lord their God. Just as Gomer's covenant unfaithfulness was evidenced by her ongoing adultery, Israel's covenant unfaithfulness was seen in their ongoing idolatry. Just as Gomer deserted Hosea and turned to other lovers, Israel deserted God and turned to other gods. And just as Hosea will go, and pursue his unfaithful wife again. God continues to pursue his people despite their unfaithfulness to him. 
but a somewhat silly question is still there. This one question, how are we to understand these cakes of raisins? What's going on there? And why do, why do these cakes of raisins, why does it grieve God? See, it has nothing to do with the dessert itself, as we talked about on Wednesday night. This doesn't mean that Christians are not allowed to bring the occasional cinnamon raisin bagel to worship, or cake for that matter. The context of this dessert is significant. In Hosea's time, many scholars believe that these raisin cakes were used in pagan worship as as a sort of aphrodisiac that would help them participate in their promiscuity of Baal worship. Baal was this Canaanite Phoenician god, also known as a sun god or known as this pagan god of fertility. Worship unto Baal, this false god, would have promised this abundance of rain, an abundance of crop and even cattle and herd, possibly even a family fortune in that regard. But in order to persuade this false god or to invoke him to act, to give them what they want, what would worshipers need to do? Worshipers would either need to do one of two things. They would need to do the unthinkable. One, they could either give the best that they had, which was their children, make numerous baby sacrifices, child sacrifices, or they would fornicate before the statues with Baal priestesses and priests. You know, this made Baal worship very popular amongst men in every culture in the ancient Near East, including Israel. Therefore, the act that Israel loved these cakes of raisins speaks not of their favorite dessert, but of their love and their celebration of promiscuous celebrations and pagan worship. They celebrated their sin. In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, he gives a somewhat similar view. He gives the devil's point of view when it comes to pleasure-seeking. I don't know if you've read this book before, but as Screwtape, this fictional high-ranking demon, writes to his incompetent nephew, a tempter in training, he explains how his nephew can be a better help to his patient trying to make him fall away from this relationship with God. So the uncle, Screwtape, writes to his nephew, I know we have won a many soul through pleasure. All the same, it is God's invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which God has produced and distort them, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. To get a man's soul and to give him nothing in return. That's what really gladdens the devil's heart. What an apt description for the type of pleasure-seeking that Israel loved and celebrate it. Israel gave up everything, everything for these pagan idols, a right, loving relationship with their God, his generous provision for them because of the expression of that love, his loving protection, his nearness, all that up. And what did they get in return? nothing. Absolutely nothing. But once again, this helps us understand God's amazing grace. You know, it it would have been easier for God to just walk away, to give up on his fallen people. He could have easily just walked away and let them eat. This is ironic. They're just desserts. But instead, what do we see? God intervenes in their sin and again pursues his people even though they are unworthy of his unconditional love. Christian, I have an exhortation for you. My first exhortation, my first challenge for you is 
communicate God's love accurately. Again, my first exhortation for you is communicate God's love accurately. And as you're writing down, I want you to pay attention to this. Hosea was instructed to communicate God's love in a way that past generations of Israel failed to do. For generations, Israel continued to communicate God's love as if they were entitled to it. For this reason, generation after generation continued to grow further and further away from this correct understanding of who God is and their love for Him as His people. Church, understand that this is true today as it was true in Hosea's day. We see this constantly throughout churches all over the world, especially in America. Understand that incorrect theology, especially passed down from generation to generation, it leads to incorrect worship, which leads to incorrect lifestyles. How we understand God and His love certainly matters. It affects the way we understand God and His response and our response to His love. It affects the way that we understand ourselves and it affects the way that we view our togetherness as His people, how we relate to one another in His church. So brothers and sisters in Christ, you must communicate God's love accurately. How do we do this? Christian, the only way we can accurately communicate God's love is through understanding what the Bible says about God's love. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's there's no other way to understand God's love than through his word, his revelation of himself to us. You know, a a missionary friend, I, I will never forget this, but a missionary friend told me about his experiences, sharing about this love, sharing the gospel message to these villages in India, and how those experiences that he had will forever change the way that he does share about God's love in the future. He explained that when he started, when they started, this missionary team in India started, they went from village to village, ready to show a movie called the Jesus Movie. Maybe you've heard of it before, but this was a a movie that was supposed to kind of picture what Jesus did in 1979. But it had recently just been translated into the dialects of these villagers. They were excited. The original plan was that they would travel with a gas generator, a portable movie screen, and a film projector so that they could show this movie and talk to these villagers about Jesus. And by God's grace, many came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Praise God. For weeks, they spent time teaching them about their Bibles and their need to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Praise God. This was amazing. They were also instructed to do this. They were instructed that part of their new life in Jesus Christ meant that they too must go and tell others about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what my friend heard next floored him. as they were told to share this message with other people in their villages. They said, okay. They agreed to share the gospel, but first, they needed to make sure that the missionary team, before they left, that they gave them some gas generators, some portable movie screens, and a few film projectors so that they too could show this movie and talk to other villagers about Jesus Christ. So this, what did this mission team try to do? What did my friend try to do? They, they tried to explain to them, no, 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 no. The Bible is the best way to tell others about Jesus. The Bible is enough. What was their response? But that's not how you did it. Christian, God has revealed himself using words that we may understand him and his love. And yes, we've been blessed today in our modern time with many, many helpful tools and guides to assist us in sharing the good news 
of the gospel with unbelievers. But as I've mentioned several times before, they are never meant to, they were not meant to overshadow or replace the Bible in our evangelism. The, these are not resources that were meant to overshadow or replace the Bible in our discipleship. Christian, brothers and sisters in Christ, you must learn how to effectively and accurately communicate God's love through the Bible. No other resource will be more effective than God's Word itself. As Paul proclaimed, it is God's Word, the gospel message, that is the power unto salvation. And for this, Christian, I want, to consider, I want you to consider these questions. If you had the chance right now to share the gospel with someone, if they came up to you and said, what do you mean about this Jesus guy? What do you mean about blood? How is that going to help me? My question is, where would you turn to in your Bible? In the past year, what are some ways that you have grown in your understanding of the gospel, your understanding of how to use the Bible? Are your attempts to understand God's word just done by yourself, in isolation, individually? Or are they also done in Christian community, under the loving care of faithful pastors, elders, deacons in our church, leaders? Are you taking every opportunity to properly understand God's Word and how to use it in your life and in your mission? In summary, are you growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Christian, no matter your age, no matter how long you've been a Christian, Never, never stop learning how to communicate God's love accurately. The second truth that evidences God's amazing grace is this. Our redemption came through Jesus and was purchased by his blood. Our redemption came through Jesus and was purchased by his blood. For the first point, we saw that in verse 1. We see the second point in verses 2 and 3. Hosea carried out God's command just as he was instructed. God told him to go, so he went to go and find his wife. This implies that Hosea would need to go around the city looking for her. One can dare imagine the types of places Hosea would have to go look to go find her. No man of God should be seen in those places. But Hosea went, and he found her, not in the arms of one of her lovers, but on the auction block, being sold as a slave. The text doesn't tell us how she got there, but with this one Hebrew word translated, so I bought her, Hosea powerfully expresses her disgrace, the depths to which she has fallen, as well as that Hosea must now do in order to save her. The word bought would simply imply that Hosea would need to haggle. He would need to bid in order to buy his wife back. I love how one scholar points out Hosea's response to go love is not so he went and loved, but I bought. Love in action. We're not told specifically how this auction went in this text, but according to the tradition of 8th century B.C. ancient Near Eastern cultures, the price Hosea would have to pay would be determined by the bidding over the body of his wife. Per custom, these slaves would have been stripped naked on this auction block. So as one scholar notes, once again, Hosea would have to share in Gomer's shame to win her back. So what did Hosea do? What would he need to do to win his wife back? He bid and continued to bid so that he could outbid his competitors and finally win his wife back. And what was that price? Hosea explains that in order to purchase his wife back, he had to pay 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. The strange fact that Hosea had to pay money and with large sums of grain seems to suggest that he ran out of money or that this was difficult for him and needed to resort to other payment methods. 
this possibly expresses that this was everything that he had left. And once the auction was over, Hosea would have been presented with this woman, his wife, that he had just purchased back. I can't imagine how Gomer felt. The guilt, the shame, the fear of the moment as she looked at her husband who had just bought her back with this costly price. And according to the societal standards of this time and place, she was now Hosea's property. But I love how J.M. Boyce words it. He writes this, Hosea now could do anything he wished to her. If he wanted to, he could have killed her out of spite. He could have done it. People might have called him a fool to waste his money on a worthless woman. Yet, at this point, Hosea's love, which is an illustration of God's love for us, burned brightest. Instead of seeking vengeance, he put Gomer's clothes on her, led her away into the anonymity of the crowd and claimed that love from her that was now his right. Moreover, as he did so, he promised no less from her. So what did Hosea say to his now reclaimed wife? Look at verse 3. Hosea lovingly says to his wife, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to any other man. So will I also be to you. The Hebrew is very difficult in this section as the wording seems very sparse. There's a lot of discussion over this wording in this last half of of verse 3, but it's necessary to understand the heart of Hosea as we read these words. The, The language that Hosea uses is nothing but gracious, beyond anything that anyone or even she can deserve as it points to his desire to restore her as his wife again. It's most likely referring to this period of time where the physical intimacy of their marriage would need to take the back seat compared to the spiritual intimacy that needs to be restored first. This period of abstinence was supposed to be a time that brought her to this place of purity, that her relationship with her true husband will finally be restored. Therefore, a better rendering of this final statement in verse 3 would read, you will be mine and I will be yours. It was because Hosea loved Gomer that he pursued his sinful wife, and in the same way, it was out of Hosea's love that he wished to restore her. But we should not applaud Hosea for somehow finding it within himself to forgive such a sinful woman, no. This is not the message that Hosea is communicating. This is not how we're supposed to walk away from this story. Hosea's love for his sinful wife was driven by the love of God. To love the unlovable, to be faithful to the faithless, and to be true to his covenant. To be true to this relationship to the very one who has walked away from it. This stands as a picture of God's amazing grace. Where where Gomer was once enslaved with a high price on her head, we too were enslaved in our sin and owed a debt that we could not pay. There was nothing we could do. God, rich in his mercy, came to redeem us by sending his own son, Jesus Christ. And what was the price of our redemption? What would it take for us to be saved? Unlike Hosea, it wasn't this sum of money and grain that would pay for our sin. It was Jesus' life, his blood. Philippians 2 explains that Jesus emptied himself by taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And it was out of God's great love for us that while we were still sinners, Romans says, He died for us. Church, our redemption came through Jesus and was purchased by his blood. Before I give you my next exhortation, let's hit point number three. It says this, the third truth that evidences God's amazing grace is that reconciliation, being restored back into that right relationship, restoration itself 
is made possible through Jesus alone. Notice that I didn't, that I didn't say you've got to earn God's love again, that you have to somehow tip the balances to make up for your wrongs. No, I didn't say that. That reconciliation, restoration happens how? It's made possible through what means? Jesus alone. In this next section, verses 4 and 5, God explains what needs to happen in order for his people to be reconciled and restored back to him. Like Gomer's period of restoration, it's not going to be easy for Israel, but it will certainly be worthwhile. See, the things that we've taken away were not bad in themselves. Sexual intimacy within marriage, it's good. It's not bad within itself. For Israel, kings, princes, outer garments of the priests, they were not bad in themselves. But when these good things take precedence over the relationship, when these things become more important than being in the right relationship with each other, they become defiled. They get in the way. All these things were supposed to be expressions of a healthy, loving, right relationship. But for Gomer, for God's people, for us as sinners, these things pulled us, pulled them away from this healthy, loving, close, right relationship with the person that truly loved them. The word for at the beginning of verse four is explanatory. It spells out this deeper meaning behind Gomer's period of abstinence. Her restoration back into a right relationship with Hosea was to represent Israel's restoration back into this right relationship with God. What would this disciplinary period of restoration look like for Israel? What will be taken away so that they can turn back to God with purified worship and a restored right relationship? Verse 4 reads this, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. You see, God explains that he will take away these things that have become idols to them. These things that they have trusted in 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 place of their God. And again, some of these things are not bad within themselves, but God explains that he will take away their kings, princes, priests, ephods, and idols in order to, to reconcile and restore them as his own. Some of Israel's kings brought God's people into stronger relationships with God, and because of this, the princes that followed did the same thing. But other kings, I would say majority of other kings, such as the current King Jehu, led them into idol worship, led them further away from their relationship with God. In the same way, the priests who were represented uh, by this word ephod, also caused them to fall into idolatry, false worship. And the rest of these items, such as the false sacrifices, pillars, and represented pagan temples, household gods, they were all associated with idol worship. And again, these were the very things that pulled them away from this right relationship with God. Therefore, what does God do? He does not stand idly by. He says that he will take them away out of his great love for them. Hebrews 12, 10, 11 addresses how this type of discipline is God's love towards his people. The author of Hebrews writes, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What is the fruit that came out of Israel's discipline? What, what would they gain from this purifying from God? Verse 5 gives us the answer. It explains that once their purification is complete, there will be a day. There will be a day where they will return to God in true faith. There are two key phrases here in verse 5 that make this final verse very rich with meaning. Firstly, the phrase return and seek speaks of the similar picture of Gomer returning to Hosea. Right after Hosea pays the costly price to redeem his wife, she returns to her husband in fear but is received in love by him. The, return, the, the words return and seek spoke of this later day after their exile when Israel would repent 
of their sin and seek God in undefiled, true worship. This spoke of a day where their intimate relationship, like that of Gomer and Hosea, will finally be restored. Notice that Hosea uses also this phrase, David their king. This is not referring to the King David of the past who is long dead. Instead, this is referring to something future, referring to the descendant of David, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will call them to saving faith through the gospel. This phrase, David their king, is a reminder that God will reunite the northern and southern kingdom under Jesus Christ. But there will come a day where this reuniting will not just be for these 12 tribes. It will not just be for the north and the south. It will also include both Jews and Gentiles who will come in reverence to God under their one head, Jesus Christ. I love how Chester, one commentator, summarizes saying, Jesus is the one who ultimately ends this exile. Jesus is God's promised king, the new David who leads us home to God. Christian, my final exhortation this morning is this. Express your gratitude for Christ increasingly. Again, express your gratitude for Christ increasingly. It is a sad reality. It breaks my heart when I hear this. When, when Christians get over their salvation experience. You know, where, where there was once excitement surrounding their, their new life in Christ. Some Christians find themselves tired, exhausted of hearing about the gospel. They desire to move on with their lives. When I worked with middle school and high school students, that they would finally be able to graduate from this elementary message and move forward with something a little bit more proper for their age. Some would even admit that, you know, the honeymoon phase of my faith, it's past. That's okay. It's not okay. Why? Because instead of daily growing in their knowledge of God, daily growing in the power of the gospel message, you see, they have plateaued for years and become complacent in their spiritual transformation. For this reason, it is difficult for many Christians to understand how our gratitude for Christ should continue to grow over the course of our entire lives. Not just that one moment, not just a honeymoon period, but until our final breath. One of the causes of this phenomenon, many Christians have truncated their understanding of the gospel. And because they have failed to accurately understand and communicate God's love, the gospel message, many, many Christians today do not have the proper understanding of what the gospel actually is. To truly understand the gospel, one must understand the never-ending depth of their sin and their never-ending never holiness of God. The more a Christian grows in their awareness of their sin, their unrelenting sin, the more they grow in their understanding of God's holiness, the more they understand that great chasm that separates our sinfulness from God's holiness. And it is through this picture that we understand that great chasm that has been covered by the cross, by the blood of Jesus Christ. By this the more we grow in our understanding of these elements, the more we grow in our gratitude of who Jesus is, what he has done, is doing, and will do in the future. Christian, I know my, my time is running thin, but Christian, I wanna ask you this question. Have you lost the excitement of your salvation? Do, do you kind of feel like the honeymoon phase of your faith, it's, it's kind of past? Has your Christian walk become humdrum and, and your life as the church become wearisome? Christian, do not burden yourself with attempting to rekindle this joy, excitement, and gratitude on your own. You'll only frustrate yourself and other people around you. But, but if this describes you this morning, Take heart, brother in Christ. Be, be 
comforted, sister in Christ. There, there is certainly hope. That's you this morning. Grow in your love for God by growing as a disciple in Jesus Christ. You're like, oh no, he used that word again, disciple. <laughs> Grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Deepen your understanding of the gospel daily by growing in your awareness of sin, growing in your awareness of God's holiness, and growing in your gratitude of Christ's payment for our sin to make us right before God. And it's only when you grow in these areas can you then express your gratitude for Christ increasingly. In conclusion, maybe this morning you don't know what it means to be in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And perhaps you don't know what that means anymore. Perhaps you prayed a prayer a long time ago. Maybe you even got baptized at a young age, but you're not sure where you stand today in your faith. And after hearing what Gomer went through, you understand what it feels like to reach your wit's end. Where when we read of Gomer's sin and unfaithfulness, you too feel like you've reached this place of guilt, shame, enslavement, and you have no idea where to turn. Take heart, friend. There is hope. Just as Gomer was purchased out of slavery back into this loving relationship with Hosea, you too can experience what it means to be bought back into a right relationship with God through the blood of Christ. Whether it's your first time coming to know Christ or it's your prodigal return back to Christ, turn away from your sin this morning. The very things that are keeping you away from this right relationship with him, turn away from them and turn to Christ. He will have you. You're not too far gone. Today, you can know what it means to receive God's mercy. Today, you can know what it means to be a child of the living God. Turn to Christ today. Christian, I turn back to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are growing in your faith but want to learn more how to do that. You have heard many instructions this morning that were directed at you. And again, I want to clarify that all this is made possible by God's unconditional love for sinners. It is God who pursues his people even though they are unworthy of his unconditional love. We must never forget that our redemption came through Jesus and was purchased by his blood. And it is through his blood alone that reconciliation and restoration is made possible. And in our response, brothers and sisters in Christ, again, you must communicate God's love accurately. And you must express your gratitude for Christ increasingly. This is what it means to respond as God's purchased and redeemed bride. This is what it means to be his church together.